Hi, Glenn. Hello, how are you? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Great. Um, so in the past, I guess mastering had quite a specific role in terms of vinyl and things like that. How do you see the role of mastering in modern music in terms of the streaming era? Um, I don't think it's drastically different from the vinyl days in a lot of ways. And in uh, recent years, it's kind of even swung back to that again as vinyl sales have kind of increased and people are rediscovering that format. But uh, it's always kind of a preparation for a release. And, uh, you know, we were always kind of the facilitators between the recording studio and the release. And I think we still maintain that position. Can you hear when things aren't mastered, if you're listening kind of casually? It all depends on the mixer and how he's prepped his mixes. So uh, sometimes I hear something and I know it's definitely not mastered. Uh, other times I can hear things that sound like they might have been mastered or definitely were mastered. Um, uh, but, you know, a lot of mixers have different approaches and some prepare things kind of not um, with a lot of post-production and uh, let the mastering guy finish it if they have somebody that they trust and kind of like to tag team with. And other guys like to, you know, get it sounding like it's finished. And uh, there's a lot of post-production they do. And, um, you know, that's a different approach and they're both fine. If someone asks you what you would prefer if they were handing you a project, would you ask them to leave certain things off the master or would you tell them to do what they sound Honestly, the best? That approach has changed a lot over the years because um, people be, have really started using some uh, post-production now. And when I say post-production, I'm talking about things after the mix on the stereo bus, uh, kind of you know late in the process, uh, that become part of their sound. And the last thing I really want to do is tell somebody to undo their sound so I could redo it for them. Uh, because no matter what I do, I'm not going to do exactly what their taste was. It may be something they like. And, you know, if I'm lucky, 50% of the time they'll say they like it better. And maybe 50% of the time they say, oh, I like what I did better. So, um, you know, I, I want them to do what they do. But I don't want to get a master that's compromised in dynamics, preferably, or made too loud. That's really the only request I have. Do you have a policy in terms of revisions and number of revisions and that sort of thing? It's not like a, a written in stone policy, but um, you know, we tell the clients basically that we want to make them happy. And uh, you know, I normally never charge for mastering revisions. But if they come back to me and say, um, you know, uh, I feel like my vocal's too low or, you know, we left out an uh, ad lib in the third verse and we, we got to reprint the mixes again, then that's a different story. But, uh, you know, because the, the onus is on the mixer and the producer at that point to check their stuff before they handed it to me. And we also listen to, well, I should say we, I also listen to all the files before we actually set up a mastering appointment. So um, if I hear something that's really out of whack, I will say something uh, to the client beforehand to kind of prevent, you know, a situation like that. But, you know, so uh, it's not a, a thing that we run into all the time. And honestly, revisions are a pretty low percentage of stuff. But uh, it's more often that the, uh, the artist will change something in the mix and then we get a revision because of that. What kind of percentage of your sessions are attended? 
Zero. <laughs> Uh, we used to have a big analog studio in uh, Atlanta, and um, um, when I sold that studio, I went traveling for four years and worked out of uh, re remotely from six different countries, and um, uh, was stationed in uh, Iceland, was stationed in Europe, uh, was stationed not sorry, was stationed in Asia, all over, um, and. Um, yeah, it was a fun time, but uh, it helped me explore some new techniques and so on. Do you maybe talk about some of those techniques that come to mind, the things that you got from traveling? Well, I mean, I think the biggest one is learning how to listen again. And uh, when you've been in a room, I had a great Francis Manzella, uh, same guy that did the old Sterling Sound design room in Atlanta, well, rooms, uh, several rooms. And... Um, uh, we had, you know, fantastic monitoring and all that stuff. And, you know, I was very used to that. And, uh, you know, subsequently I started working with in-ears and um, traveled with in-ears probably for about three years, four years, and uh, uh, got used to those as opposed to uh, working in a room. And uh, it took a little while for my brain to translate all of the sonics and um you know, w w my base instincts to kind of transfer over to listening in a different way. And now I use uh, uh, both headphones and in-ears. And, uh, you know, I haven't worked with monitors in almost five years now. So, Do you have certain favorite pairs of headphones that you go to every day? I do, actually. Um, there's a company I work with called uh, Audacy. And um, I work with uh, a set of uh, their headphones called uh, LCD4s. Uh, they're uh, uh, planar headphones. And uh, um, I also use uh, uh, a company called Cord Electronics, lovely English company, uh, for uh, my DACs and so forth and to power those puppies. And uh, you know, been very happy with both. Are you just working totally digitally now, or is there any analog part of the chain too? You know, I, I've gone back and forth because, you know, I, I started slowly selling off my analog studio. And uh, I think everybody in our business has this romantic thing about all their analog gear. And it's like, you know, their children. And, you know, I can't sell my old, you know, Neumann this or this, this or, you know. And I'd hang on to them for years. And every once in a while, I'd throw them back in the chain and say, oh, let's see, you know, how this old friend is. And most of the time, I was kind of disappointed. Um, you know, it kind of introduced a bunch of stuff as well as randomizing uh, the ability to kind of come back to the same place again. And one of the most important things right now is that, you know, uh, my clients especially want their stuff quick and they want it uh, the same as what they had, except they wanted this change. And so if I'm doing a recall or something like that, when I go analog, uh, and this was the case even way back then um, when I had a full analog setup, um, when I go back to recall stuff, it wasn't ever exactly the same. You know, you could write down all your settings, come back to everything, but it never quite sounded the same. So I'm much happier now. Good. In terms of EQ and compression, are you generally relying on one or two things to do kind of a bit of everything for you, or are you stacking multiple compressors with more kind of specific jobs? It all depends on, you know, the track. So in general, I don't really use 
compression uh, very much. And uh, um, sometimes I'll throw in a compressor for color, um, but I don't usually have any of the meters moving uh, for gain reduction anyway, because, uh, you know, everything's pretty compressed nowadays and everybody's got a million instances of whatever compressor they want. So it's pretty rare I get something that's too dynamic. And, um, you know, for the most part, it's just kind of, you know, add a little color here or, uh, you know, and I'll use like a bunch of different things depending on what the track needs. So, Are there any things outside of that that you use regularly, regularly like images or reverb or? No, I, uh, I, one of those mastering guys is that fairly firmly believe that reverb is for a mixer to uh, use and, um, you know, if uh, something has uh, the improper balance of, um, you know, spatial stuff and, uh, you know, ambience, um, I'll always say, you know, hey, mixer, you know, did, did you notice this? And, you know, maybe you want to adjust it because those balances to me aren't for a mastering guy to choose. Um, you know, we're here to polish a final product and not make mixing decisions, which, you know, I, I, there's a lot of guys in my field that like the stem mastering and other stuff. And I'm a big no, no on that. Um, you know, I think the mixers need to do their job and mix something. And if something's not right, they should fix it and not hand it off to the mastering guy. Do you ever use things like distortion or saturation? I think I've always used distortion and saturation, but back in the day it was just jamming signal into something else till it distorted. So, uh, you know, and you can still do the same thing in digital, but, you know, the digital stuff, depending on what it is, has a different um, response for gain staging than analog stuff has. Is that is saturation something that you would, that you would use kind of perceivably on a master? Would that be too much of an I don't artistic? Think no, uh, unless you were going for something just kind of way out of the norm of ballpark uh, audio, I want my stuff to sound clean. Um, so, you know, there's saturation the way everybody used to use it back in the day, whether it was, you know, slamming the tape or, um, you know, uh, just running stuff hot into an A to D or, um, you know, and those were pleasant distortions and didn't really... Uh, you weren't necessarily aware that you were hearing distortion. Um, they all just sounded good to you or smooth to you, or, you know, they've had tape compression or other things that would be uh, uh, to your ear perceived as something smooth, but not perceived as distortion. So, you know, I'm kind of in that school that you don't want to perceive distortion. Do you use images or mid-side processing much? Um, I do occasionally, sure. Um, uh, I mean, mid-side is something, you know, I think every mastering guy uses, um, you know, and it, you, you need to use it judiciously, if I could say it, judiciously, um, uh, as it can get out of hand really easy. And, um, you know, it can really whack out somebody's mixes quite easy. So, Could you talk through some of your favorite EQs that you use? <sighs> I mean, as of recently, I've been using... Um, uh, acoustic audio stuff uh, quite a bit and um, you know I use several of their EQs uh, but you know EQs are such um, there's the right EQ for the right track and um, there's um, you know you could say cut 5k with one EQ uh, at a certain bandwidth and you know you use three different EQs and they have three different sounds 
So, you know, I use stuff from, you know, different companies as well. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I really want to try to match the flavor of what's really kind of sounding pleasant with things to the track. So, so nothing specifically I use every day, uh, but there'll be a, like a palette of, you know, maybe four or five different EQs that I'll, I'll kind of choose from and see what I like. Um, you know, I, I use, uh, uh, Acoustica, uh, their gold stuff quite a bit, and uh, it's the uh, old uh, Neve uh, remake, and um, um, you know that, that's always kind of pleasant for most stuff. But then occasionally I'll find nope, didn't work, and I got to pull you know a Brainworks piece out or something like that, and you know see how it reacts. So. Do you use dynamic EQs or multiband compression much? Uh, no, <laughs> uh, I'm not a big fan of either of those. And, um, I find they kind of, uh, mostly kind of whack out things where, you know, I can tell it's unnatural at that point. Um, you know, they have their, they have their uses. Uh, and if I need to do something specific, um, you know, like a DS something or whatever that I need to use a dynamic EQ, um, you know, I'll use it in that kind of instance, but Otherwise, no, I try to stay away from that kind of stuff. I know people quite often think of mastering as sort of kind of making something sound like a record. If you're quite light on a lot of processing, then are there any particular things to you that kind of make something sound like a record? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think part of it is the glue uh, that kind of makes a mix feel, you know, cohesive. And some of that can come from, you know, the mix and some of that can come from the mastering. Um, so, you know, having stuff that's not jutting out both sonically, uh, dynamically um, is important. And I think that's, you know, the dynamics should be, unless they're trying to do something different, should be balanced within the track. And, you know, I want something to have uh, a balanced feel. That's really all I try at the end of the day. Are there any, I don't know, you've mentioned a few, but are there any common things that when mixes come to you, you notice the problems, kind of things that come up the most? Uh, yeah, um, things are too loud almost always. Um, but I understand that. I mean, clients want loud references. And, um, you know, but uh, even the non-loud references are still pretty loud now. So um, what else? Uh Things come in uh, usually too bright for the most part. Uh, people have, you know, brightened up stuff with EQs that didn't need it, uh, especially a lot of sampled sounds and so on, where, uh, you know, it's a sound that's already been EQ'd and compressed, and the mixer is now EQ'd it a third or fourth time, and uh, it's kind of lost its, you know, natural tone and uh, kind of gets harsh. So uh, I'd say that. And then the last thing is probably vocals that are recorded in a bad room um, and where you can really hear that it was done in, you know, kind of a non-professional studio, even if it was done by somebody professional. So, uh, you know, sometimes they get lucky and sometimes they don't. Uh, but that all depends on, you know, we have artists that are, you know, touring and they're recording something in a hotel room or, uh, you know, I, I understand there's limitations to what people can do sometimes. Is there anything that's more important for the, for the kind of final result that you think most people don't really think of? More important as to what? Um, well, let me rephrase that. Is there anything that 
you think is more, impo- more important than other people think it is for the final result? For me, um, you know, especially like indie rock and some things like that, uh, where they're purposefully burying like a vocal um, to make it not sound like a pop record. Um, I personally can't stand that. <laughs> and, um, you know, I understand it's kind of an aesthetic that some people prefer. But honestly, if somebody's going to sing or record something, I want to hear the parts. And even if it's not a pop record, I want to have the sensibility that I can hear what the vocalist is doing, even if it's mumbling or gargling or uh, screaming at the top of their lungs. Um, So I still like uh, a balance of things where you can hear stuff. And uh, a lot of people try to get artistic in that way. And uh, I'm not necessarily a big fan of that. Is there anything that you think is not as important as most people make it out to be? Um, yeah, I think uh, equipment is not that important. Um, people are worried about having the newest or the oldest or the best or whatever. And uh, people rarely spend the time to learn the tools that they have already. So, um, you know, I, I think the, the people always come to me and say, do I need to give you, you know, 96K files or do I need to record this in 32-bit or, um, you know, uh, should I get this new, you know, blah, 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 uh, you know, plug-in or modeling mic or whatever it is. And for the most part, no, uh, you probably don't need it. And, um you know, I still have great recordings coming in at, you know, lower resolution, like 48 or 41, 44.1. And, uh, you know, most of the professional mixers I know, uh, it's kind of just getting up to a higher sample rate now. But uh, even though they could have done it years ago, they're comfortable, you know, running stuff at 44 or 48 because their computers run well and they don't crash as much and you don't spend as much time transferring files. And, you know, the sound difference is minute so have you done much mastering of live albums and if so is there any kind of big difference uh live albums are very different and yeah sure i mean i've been doing it for 26 years now so um yeah i've done a bunch of live records um but um i think uh the main thing in live records is uh if there's continuity on uh, the recording place so if they've done all these concerts in one venue, uh, all the songs rather, um, then you know you want to treat it similarly. But you know a lot of times there'll be three songs from one venue and ten songs from another venue, and they sound very different. And uh, you just want to get some continuity between the stuff. But uh, in general, I mean it's usually you know live albums are okay, but not my favorite. Do you have certain techniques that you use to get continuity between different things like that? It's not techniques as much as just listening. Um, you know, you, you'll hear, um, you know, this venue had, you know, a booming low mid going there or, you know, the the mix on this venue, uh, they really, you know, put the drum mics hot. And, uh, you know, if that was the case, I'd probably calm down the high end to let all that cymbal crashing and all that stuff not be as annoying when uh, you listen to it next to the ones that are better better balanced from the other stuff so i'm not sure how much recording and mixing you still do but has mastering changed the way you approach those two things uh i don't really do much of the other anymore i did certainly back in the day 
Um, I started kind of as a producer and a musician and uh, was a mixer for many years too. But um, I think uh, my approach would be quite different now. Um, I think I would do much less <laughs> than I would have back in the day and uh, treated things much kinder. Uh, I think uh, I, I would have had a heavier hand uh, back in the day compared to what I do now. So, Just to finish up, could you talk a little bit about how you got started in mastering and kind of your career up until now? So um, my background is basically um, I grew up in New York City and um, I was a musician. I was a guitar player and playing in a bunch of bands when I was a kid. And um, I started going into the studio to record some of those bands and uh, uh, people would ask me to, to do things for other folks at the studio because I kind of was teaching myself at the time on how to engineer. And um, there was somebody next to me actually from one of the first hip hop labels in uh, New York. And uh, he asked me if I could come play and help him record next door. And um, he's the guy, uh, uh, guy's name Spider D. And uh, he was the guy that kind of started me in the studio. And uh, we recorded a whole bunch of records together. And, uh, you know, we'd produce and mix and, you know, do everything on these records. And uh, years later, after I started mixing records, uh, I had a producer I used to work with. And he handed me a bunch of uh, Neumann EQs and compressors. And uh, he said, uh, you should try mastering. I think you'd be good at it. And uh, he left them at my studio one day. And I mastered some of my clients I was mixing at the time, which is probably not the best idea. Uh, but uh, I did it, and uh, it sounded pretty good for what they said anyway. <laughs> and um, so uh, I, I kind of felt like it was a better fit than what I was doing for me before. Uh, it just kind of matched my personality better to be looking at stuff from a 10,000-foot view rather than a 10-foot view. And, um, you know, I kind of took to it quickly. So Do you have that any... is the story. <laughs> Do you have any kind of single piece of work that you think of that you're most proud of? That's tough. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of work that I think, you know, is okay. I don't really like to listen to my stuff after I finish it. Um, people come back to me about certain records. And, um, you know, uh, recently, I mean, the last few years, uh, people come up to me about uh, an artist named Future, who uh, did a record called DS2, which has become like kind of a hip hop trap classic for people. And uh, so I get that record a lot. And um, it's kind of like, uh, it's a lot of people's reference for bass apparently now. Um, and uh, my dear friend Seth, who was the mix engineer in that, uh, who passed away um, the year before, um, we had a just wonderful relationship. And um, so any of the records I did with him kind of, always hold a nice place. Uh. I think that's all my questions. So thank you so much for speaking with me. Sure. It's a pleasure.